at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. everyone, welcome uh, once again to another episode of the Curiosity Habit and today I have a great pleasure to be having a conversation with Dr. Jerry Gormley from Northern Ireland. Jerry is a chair in simulation and clinical skills at the Center for Medical Education, Queen's University, Belfast and Carrie Duff GP Surgery. Welcome to our show, Jerry. It's a great pleasure to have you here with us. And it's such an honor for me to be here as well, sir. Thank you very much for the invite. Thank you. So as I was mentioning in our preamble for this interview was like, this is going to be mostly about you and mostly about the stories that some people might know or might not know. And I like always to start by picking a little bit into your years of growing up. Like, what can you tell us about you? Who was Jerry growing up? How was he? What was he curious about? And then from there up to here, what remained as your main curiosity throughout? Yeah, wow. Um, really interesting to talk about my childhood in, in, a, in a kind of a research context. I've never been asked that before. Wow. <laughs> my word, where do I start? Well, probably best to start that I grew up in Belfast, uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland. Um, and, you know, when I look back, I was very fortunate to have a wonderful childhood. Um, always curious, always asking questions, always experimenting. Um, and, you know, not just sort of posing questions, but actually following it through. Let me find the answer. How can I, how can I get to that? And maybe <laughs> I might be showing my age here, but the internet wasn't around then. <laughs> and, you know, it, it took a while to find out the answers. You know, I may needed to go to the local library ask people around the community if it's something that I needed to fix or work on. Um, and, uh, you know, at home there was always, you know, home chemistry sets and electronic circuit boards, even had a microscope, you know, I was always curious and just experimenting and, you know, trial and error. Um, and, you know, that may sound like quite a science background, but also I really enjoyed art and design. Oh. Um, I could lose myself in sketching, designing uh, various things, you know, it was something that I really liked. So that sort of synergy between the, the, the science uh, and the arts, you know, so designing you know, things like, I always remember I designed a burglar alarm system for our house, just with little bits of wire wow. and, and, tor and little bulbs and making go-karts out of pram wheels and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but really sort of, um, you know, curious, but a follow through story, you know, I wanted to, yeah. you know, I got a question, but I want to see it to, to, to the end. Hmm. And probably, you know, the biggest influence on me was, was my mum, my late mum. Um, and, um, and probably the biggest influence on me in terms of me being a doctor, a clinical doctor, and the role that I am as an academic uh, currently. Like I said, I was very fortunate to have a lovely childhood. Um, you know, we had our troubles here and conflict in Northern Ireland, but despite that, my mum uh, gave me a wonderful childhood. Um, she, she was a, in a role, she was a single parent, but she was in a role that we called a home help, which is like a community care assistant, you know, somebody who helped 
you know, look after older people, put into bed and dress them and that. And just she had the sheer joy of helping others, you know, drawing sort of, uh, you know, real satisfaction of just caring for someone and those those basic things that actually are big things in, in individuals' lives. And I suppose that sort of deep-seated drive of caring and wanting to look after others kind of rubbed off on me. Um, together with the science, I wanted to do it. I wanted to, I wanted to be a, a doctor. Um, and and that, that desire was really from a young age. Things were against me. I went to a school that traditionally kids didn't go to university. Nobody went to university in my family. Uh, but actually, in a way, that kind of propelled me. <laughs> I, 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 and you'll probably see through some of my work, and maybe we'll chat later. That I'm a, I'm an underdog supporter. I, you know, that that you never get me a position where I'm an underdog because that's when I'm at my most potent. I think. Um, but also for those that, through circumstances that maybe are disadvantaged, um, you know, if you know, I, I, I really find joy in helping, you know, lift those individuals, mentor those individuals, and, and to guide them. And I had lovely teachers at my sort of primary junior schools, Sarah, who, 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 who got it, who knew that I wanted to be a doctor, though this wasn't a typical thing in those schools. And, you know, they mentored me, supported me. And guess what? I became a doctor, uh, which, was, which was a lovely thing. So I hope that, that's a little potted history of yeah. Jerry Gormley growing up in the, in the 80s and, and 70s in Belfast. Right. That's awesome. Can I pick on two pieces that you said in there? Um, Family to me is a big deal. My mom is my hero, same as my dad. Uh, and I was wondering if there was a particular moment in you growing up, you said she was a big influencer in you choosing medicine, but you also had this kind of engineering mind, I can tell. So yeah. how was, there was a moment in you growing up where something with you that you experienced with her that actually made it, made it you to go, okay, yeah, it's medicine. It's not a different thing. Yeah, well, do you know, I, I, interesting you're drawing that out because when I applied to university, I applied to two courses. One was medicine uh -huh. and the other was architecture. Oh, uh, yeah. So, uh, and, and you know, what, what, what will I do? But, but actually, my heart of hearts, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, okay. And look, you know, can I just simply say it was those moments where, you know, I, I'd have to go with my mom because she had to, you know, she's a single parent, I had to go with her at evening times when she looked after people and helped out. And mm -hmm. just that human connection um, that, you know, that giving to others and how they uh, receive that with great, you know, uh, welcome and, and joy, you know, to, to be there um, for others is just such, you know, it was overwhelming experience for me that mm -hmm. I thought, I, you know, I want I want to do that uh, and I suppose that really carries through to even now what I do as a researcher and as a GP it's about it's about people who work in a human discipline and mm -hmm. we never want to lose sight of that with the with the science and the art um, mm -hmm. uh, so I rejected the architect offer <laughs> and went for okay. yeah that that makes sense like you haven't been exposed to that area in, in your life that probably stay with you is visual memories throughout uh, thank you for that yeah 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 the other piece that i liked about what you said was the underdogs can you tell me a story about that like what will be an underdog for you and how did you rally them because my understanding is that you like supporting that kind yeah. of people um through my career and and particularly in recent times um is that we are we are a community we're a community of practice as health profession educators 
I think we've become a, a, you know, a quite a strong field. Uh, but for that to be sustained, we need to make sure the next generation are coming along uh, and supporting them. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in various parts of the world, but certainly in the UK around the sort of 90s, early 2000s, there was no real clear pathway to become a health profession researcher, an educational researcher. Uh, often many of us at that stage just fell into the post from different ways. Um, and certainly what I have seen over recent times is our individuals who didn't have that belief that they could be you know, a, an, an educator or a researcher, uh, felt that it wasn't for them, they weren't given the circumstances, um, uh, had imposter syndrome that they felt they couldn't do it. It's, it's you know, people think I'm good, but actually it's not me. Um, and, and those individuals, you know, they, they, with the right guidance and mentorship, um, I, I, I see many individuals flourish mm -hmm. to the extent that they're now colleagues and good friends. Mm -hmm. um, so the, 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 you know, that medicine is, you know, we're, we're just, we're just here for a period of time. Uh, we're looking after our discipline and our fields. So it's important that we get the next generation to, to look after it for us whenever we move on to the, the next stage of our careers. Yeah. So do those people come to you or do you make an intentional effort to go and find them? Like, how do you connect them? Yeah, I, I, I think I think there's a mixture, you know, that, you know, we, you know, that uh, through all our interactions, you know, we, we identify one or two who are really keen to maybe start a career, but are not sure. Mm. And we hopefully can guide them through that. Yeah. Every other day I'll get an email. I'm interested in education, educational research. Uh, can we can we get involved? How do I do that? Uh, and also as my position in, in a medical school where we train the next generation of doctors, you know, for sure there are many individuals who will who will come along and you know show that real good potential of being a future you know, a health professional educator, researcher, uh, being a, an academic of the future. And I think it's really important for us as researchers, as a community, to look after those individuals and support them and guide them. Mm -hmm. It may not be the career for them, and that's an important thing to know, but certainly if we can give them the circumstances, the guidance, that mentorship, um, mm -hmm. um, I, 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 hope, I hope it can help sustain our, our field going forward. And um, for you, uh, when was the time in which you found out about medical education as a career path? Uh, and how did you manage to get into it and pave the way? As you said, you were probably one of the first down there. Like, what happened for you? Yeah, okay, yeah. It, 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 was a, it certainly wasn't a linear route. And, uh, and I'm really glad to say that things are improving and have improved. Um, but I, I was qualified, I was training to be a general practitioner. Um, and was very lucky to secure a post called GParts, which is GP Academic Research Training Post. I was the first ever one. Mm -hmm. And this was a chance to give me some experience of research, the world of academia, the world of education. Mm -hmm. I always loved teaching, uh, you know, teaching my near peer teaching, my colleagues. Um, and I knew, I knew that that was something I really wanted to do. Um, and through that GParts post, I was able to develop some research in education, uh, got my doctorate, um, and then really just did some sort of ad hoc teaching sessions, so, you know, helping out with clinical skills. Yeah. Um, and, and then one person, uh, I, was, I had a great supervisor, Dr. Keith Steele, who guided me through that process. 
And then I had an individual called Kit Collins, Dr. Kit Collins, who was a clinical skills director. And she really supported and mentored me in those junior years, those early years. Um, and I was I secured a teaching post. Right. And really from that point, the world of health profession educational research opened up. Right. At that stage, it's just, you know, that everybody naturally is a teacher and it's fine and it's not an entity that we research how to teach better. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that post, you know, we constantly ask, well, why are we doing this? Why do we teach this way? Why is the OSCE like this? And often we couldn't find the answer. Yeah. And of course, go back to my childhood, I needed to get the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so we've gone into research, you know, let's, you know, let's let's find out what way we can do this better. Mm-hmm. And really from that sort of pivotal moments in my early career, I haven't looked back. And I okay. hope I still have that sort of passion for uh, mm-hmm. still being curious, but also the follow through, which I think is important as well. Right, great. And what about simulation? I feel now that I hear your story, it now it kind of makes sense to me why you are in simulation with your kind of two brains, the medicine science and then kind of the architectural engineering. But I just want to ask you, what took you to get involved in simulation? It was your choice or it was given to you? Wow. Um, uh, this, is a, this is a deeply reflective process. <laughs> <laughs> These are questions I haven't thought, um, but I'm just going to speak from the heart on this so um yeah i started off in clinical skills and then developed a profile leading aspects of the general practitioner course the gp course leading aspects of assessment in particular the oski uh, and then developed a research grouping around health profession education and then i come back to simulation and clinical skills so it's like it did a full circle around uh-huh. the curricula the taught and assessed curricula Um, and I suppose that's given me a really wide angle view on the modality of simulation you know OSCEs are a form of simulation you know we recreate realities for assessment and um, being able to look at how we organize course structure um, that it came back to to the world of simulation Uh, you know I've, I've developed you know areas of interest and gain knowledge in various parts of the taught and assessed curriculum but now I'm in a position to hopefully expand the use of simulation within mm-hmm. more aspects of our domain, our health profession domain, educational domain, but also try to push the boundaries in simulation. I, I, you know, we're doing, we're doing lots of good work, but I think there's things we can improve on. And hopefully that's yeah. one of my drives to, to take it forward. Yeah. And the other piece that I found really intriguing and fascinating about your work is the connection that you make between simulation and so- social care, which now I understand where it's coming from. <laughs> That's why I like asking the growing up question. Um, but can you oh, how, can you reflect maybe into how can simulation take us into how can we use it to nurture this aspect of medicine, the social care aspect in practice? And what have you seen being able to to be possible using simulation. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. And if I can just reflect briefly before I go into that, that, um, you know, as a junior academic, um, I was very fortunate in my institution to have so many other departments. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely little street in Belfast called University Square. There's mm-hmm. rows of Victorian houses. Uh, and each of these houses, there is a department, anthropology, social sciences, drama, and and I have to say, I was more often there than sometimes in my medical school. Um, And really those individuals, Jonathan Skinner, Paul Murphy, Gavin Davison, those really opened my eyes to beyond the positive 
domain that was largely strong in education at that stage in medicine to really think about what we can do with with simulation and i suppose the re reality is sir, that you know, simulation you know by our own hands our own design we construct learning opportunities mm -hmm. we design them uh, yes you know still as a sim simulationist the best place to learn is in the workplace i totally get that but there are learning opportunities that are not afforded in the real world. You know, yeah. high acuity emergencies uh, that, you know, we've got, you know, hundreds of medical students, not all will be able to observe or take part in assisting a patient with a cardiac arrest. So we, you know, we have to create those realities. Mm -hmm. But also and one of my big drives is that not all emergencies are medical, mental health crisis, uh, situational crisis, social crisis. So it's really how we can construct those realities and take our students to those places uh, so they not just only intellectually learn, but understand the behaviours to a certain degree embody what does this feel like? Yeah. You know, for example, it's okay, we can sit around a, a table and have a desktop exercise about an ethical dilemma and come to you know, conclusion that seems to be the best way forward. But if you put that individual into the real world with the real emotions, trying to modulate those really strong emotions, but convey and make sense and guide through this ethical dilemma, that's a different thing. Uh, and, and I think it's important that we help complement other aspects of learning to best prepare our students. For some of the harsh realities, uh, you know, it's a really rewarding job, but there are challenges. And I think it's duty bound for us to help best prepare those individuals for those, those circumstances for, for providing good care, but also their, their own care and how they manage those, those situations. So yeah, so simulation, we, we can, you know, it's, a, it's about people. And um, sometimes maybe simulation you know, conjures up in people's mind about mannequins. Yeah, and there definitely are mannequins, but actually working with, you know, simulated participants, SPs, um, SPs who have been formed by real lived experience of illness, um, can really be a potent way of learning. Uh, and, and, and again, that's my drive to further expand that uh, and also put an Evan space when and behind that that guides us in those directions. Right. And do you keep um, a particular intentional connection with those people from those disciplines? I kind of picture in walking through that street that you told me and seeing those different places that are so different from the way we think in medicine. Do you bring them together? Do you work together? How, how have them influenced your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, they have done and still do and still are good friends. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I have a, I've got this mental image of me sitting in the anthropology department with, you know, African drums and Ooh. various artifacts all sitting around talking about medicine. How cool was that? Oh, um, and, you know, uh, absolutely, because... I think that, you know, it's not just interdisciplinary, but it's transdisciplinary. We're actually forming something new here, mm -hmm. uh, opening up new horizons on what we do um, and being able to tool us with ways to actually bring that into educational practice. Mm -hmm. you, you know, if I, I, if I just mentioned one colleague, Paul Murphy in the School of Drama, I, you know, some might argue that simulation is a performance. You know, yeah. we're lived in the moment, reacting to what's happening in front of us, guess what? Actors will do that as well. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know that they're they're portraying, uh, they're um, navigating some, you know, reacting to the audience. So we we are we so we learn a lot from each other, uh, uh, and um, and yeah, so feel really privileged to be working alongside such such colleagues, 
and getting back to my art side of my, right. <laughs> my upbringing uh, yeah, yeah. that I think I think creativity uh, maybe doesn't get the, the the cutest that it should get I think because you know as a GP you know when I'm faced with a challenging situation sometimes I have to be creative in what way we can navigate this and weigh up options mm-hmm. uh, and thinking about possibilities and opening up horizons for our patients that may be options um, and also for our students being able to be adaptive and thinking in that moment, you know, in a time sensitive situation. Um, so, and sometimes arts is the best way to help complement that and how you how we act that. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. How, how did you meet them? Did you go for coffees? Did you have lunch? Like, when did you meet those individuals? Yeah, well, you know, I often it was I knocked on the door and said, hi, oh. I'm Jerry. I've heard about you. Can we have coffee? <laughs> uh, and still, still to this day, and I mentioned to any of my colleagues and mentees that um, sometimes the best research I've ever done was that I, I it started with I got on with someone we really hit it yeah. and you know we had a good friendship mm-hmm. and then we often said we should do something together yeah, and, right. and I that still stands actually you know um, you know working with good collaborators you know we can we we can take on the world yeah, uh, but right. as long as as long as you've got that relational uh, and that critical friendship. Sorry, you know, that it's okay to say, look, Jerry, I think we should do something different. And this is why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's important that you have that criticality. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think it's with those, it's those sort of tensions and people have been able to, to say, look, Jerry, I think we should change tact in here. That's how you grow. That's how you do that. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Speaking about that, because in, in, in transdisciplinary work, particularly where you have different ways of thinking, uh, you kind of tried out ideas and then some of them work and some of them don't work because you cannot anticipate, you don't think the same way. Yeah. Did you have a story about trying to put into implementation an idea that didn't work that you can now laugh about for some reason? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the, the, back, the, the back uh, catalogue is long. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, I think, I think, it's so important to learn from our failures. Yeah. Um, but most important is to know that if, if it's not working, is to understand why and not to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, despite all the all the options. Um, yeah, okay, you know, we 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 we've done I've done some projects that just didn't run. Um, nothing just comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> I probably try I probably try to erase those from my memory. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Um, but but sometimes it, it didn't it didn't work. I mean, I, I'll share with you one story that maybe it's the converse would actually really gain traction. Um uh and so my little my son who was little then, uh, his name is Gabriel, don't mind sharing that. And when he was five, he came home from a birthday party. And uh, on his arm, he had these little transfer tattoos, you know, the little sort of like, a, you know, like a superhero or, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. little sort of, they, they rub off soapy water. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, Daddy, can you make these tattoos yourself? Uh, now, first of all, I was I was kind of traumatized that my five-year-old transfer tattoo on his arm. But you know what? I looked up and we could do that. Uh, you can actually make your own. Um, and so what, what, what we did that my academic hat on and my practitioner hat on was that um, we, with a very kind permission of a patient, we used an image of their melanoma. They had a, a skin cancer melanoma. Yeah. Um, and we could actually make very high resolution images of melanomas that we could put on skin, these transfer tattoos. And can I tell you, they're very realistic. 
uh, highly realistic. And um, from that little idea, we then implemented that in teaching, but also in assessment. So for example, in Anoski, you know, maybe for many years, we never had dermatology in Anoski station. You know, how could we get six patients with melanoma for the different mm-hmm. cervical? I mean, it just wouldn't, apart from ethically and morally, you wouldn't practically want to do that. But now we were able to put those on simulated participants and we counseled mm-hmm. them about that. And just that light bulb moment, you know, when we did it. And after the exam, I mean, you get all the psychometrics area and all that's fine. It worked really well. But actually the examiners coming to me and saying, do you know something, Jerry? That worked really well. Not only did they describe the morphology, but they thought about the person behind the lesion. Yeah. You know, how they sensitively broke that news. Um, it really tapped into something deeper. So it's kind of one of those little creative ideas that actually ran through and, you know, we put it into not only teaching mm-hmm. practice, but also, you know, we researched about it. So yeah. I've got lots of those little ideas. <laughs> probably that is amazing. How, how did you come up with the idea of going from seeing your kid, which can be traumatizing with tattoos at five and yeah. connecting that with melanoma? Did you talk to yeah. someone about it or? Yeah, well, it, it, it you know, I, I absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, that the, the connection was an instant. It just went, okay, we can develop these ourselves. Yeah. But then, you know, in my own practice, you know, um, sadly at times I will be in the position to, to make that diagnosis in some patients. I felt really propelled that we need to, you know, you know, have our students, you know, be with those patients and understand that. Yeah. But of course, we just can't get all our students to see that one individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just the light bulb moment happened maybe we could create that reality and by no means can we truly simulate what it's like yeah, but yeah. it opens up some horizons it opens up more thinking um and and that was the connection and before you know it we did it and it wow. and it, it it worked it worked really well that is fantastic thanks for sharing great story i want to talk a little bit uh, we have a few more minutes uh, and a more light conversation in terms of your interest i follow you on twitter and I, you seem to me like a person who has many interests outside academia. And this conversation is obviously showing that aspect. If you were to pick what would be that one activity that gives you so much joy and that many people might not know about? Oh, wow. Um, my goodness. I love these in the moment questions. Um, right. What, what am I going to say? Okay. So can I give you two? Yeah, two. Go for okay. it. Okay. So, um, so I like nothing more than being outside, connecting with the environment, being with my family, mm-hmm. taking our dogs for a walk. But but one of my real joys is kitchen gardening. Oh. So um, I just have the joy of, and thankfully, of a little bit of space around my house uh, to grow vegetables, oh. um, all varieties of different vegetables, um, and really kind of get in tune with seasonality. What, she could be growing, planning uh-huh. the year ahead. Currently, I'm going through my seed catalogs, you know, looking forward to this year and what we might grow. Um, but, but really, the nice closure in that is to is to just to make a meal from the garden and uh-huh. sit on the table with my family and eat that. It sounds really simple and maybe, you know, but it's just a real joy. Um, and can I let you into a secret? When I'm sort of digging in the garden, you know, covered in mud and pulling uh-huh. out weeds. That's where my best thoughts come. Uh, no way. The dogs are probably running across the allotment and the kids are helping out. And But sometimes that's just with a little light bulb moment uh, happens. So that, so yeah, kitchen gardening um, yeah. Uh, is, is one. Oh, 
Well, that's that's really intriguing. Like we have heard people talking about swimming and getting their ideas when they're swimming while gardening. Yeah. That's a, that makes sense because it's kind of a meditation activity, right? You focus. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, and it just it's just you know, sort of connected with your environment, but also yeah. you, you you just have time to think, you know, and yeah. um, you know you put your phone away and you, yeah. you have nothing to distract you. It's lovely. Yeah. The other. The other, the other one um, is um, uh, and something I, I've done for many years and I'd like to do more is a keto. So I, I'm a keto practitioner um, and have done for many years. Uh, COVID has put maybe a bit more restriction than what I normally would have liked to have done. But uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's just a really nice sense of well-being. Um, okay. it's, a, it's a very old traditional Japanese martial arts mm-hmm. uh, uh, the way of harmony is what it stands. So you have to absorb energy and and as people kind of maybe attack you and you defend yourself. But, you know, it's one of those things sorry, that, you know, when when you're when you're sort of uh, interacting and sparring, you have to be in the moment. Yes. You can't think about the past, maybe a little bit about the future. What's your next move? But it's one of those just nice things that you really have to be present. Yeah. Um, and it's partly the embodiment of moving around. Oh, it's a really nice social practice and you know some great people that i've i've known over decades that have that i've trained wow. um so yeah so you know if you, uh, so uh, you know on the mats and uh yeah you know throwing people around and it's okay <laughs> um but it's it's one of those i think all of us should have one of those things that we just lose ourselves in uh, mm-hmm. and just keeps you centered at times so yeah. a, bit, a bit eclectic but there you go Oh, very much. And I haven't seen those in Twitter, by the way. So that's good to know. Thanks for sharing on that, too. When did they start? Like the gardening, this is an adult hobby and the Aikido is more like a younger years or what? Yeah. So the, the gardening, my, my mom was a great gardener, maybe not of oh, vegetables, but okay. uh, and that really started as soon as I got a little bit of space to do it. So I've been doing it for a long time. And Aikido, so I've been a uh, uh, since about 11 years of age I've been a, oh. a keto practitioner for, for wow. many years. oh you're an expert then that's good you look quite worried there <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's a very it's a it's a very it's a very gentle martial art um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah it's 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 fun yeah I can't imagine my partner does also martial arts and he can always speak about the being in the moment like when you yeah. have a, a profession where your brain has to be in tune so much those yeah. activities of not having to think they're so yeah, good yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Ab- ab- absolutely absolutely a couple more questions one that is sure. a standard one for us is what's your next curiosity Ooh. are you working on what's my next curiosity so <laughs> academically or in the garden <laughs> well, well if you can hear the two of them i'm happy to yeah no academically so uh yeah um so uh really involved in some nice collaboration with wonderful colleagues uh uh anu kajama from finland and uh some of our local colleagues richard Kahn, sarah O'Hare, uh, and others um really looking at uh, how we can harness simulation to bring about organizational change, organizational learning. Um, we've been doing some work and it's you know, really exciting work around uh, the power of simulation to, to transform organizational change. Um, um, not, not just the simulation, but the social practice 
and looking at tensions and how we overcome those to improve the systems. Um, and um, I, I've, you know, we've been working on that for a few years, but lots more work developed in the future. Uh, we've got working with some really nice uh, collaborators, uh, Andy Spence, Davina Carr, several other, lots of students who, who were really sort of excited in this, this area. Uh, I could talk all day about it, but that just gives you a snapshot. And what about gardening? Oh, uh, the gardening. So I've got some really, uh, hopefully, rare breeds of tomato uh, coming. I'm going to buy this year. Um, and uh, I'm going to try for the first time to grow squashes. So uh, watch Twitter and I'll, I'll see if I succeed or not. <laughs> okay, I'll keep an eye on that. <laughs> and my final question is, you don't have the options to say architecture or medicine. Just let's start with that. Yeah. I want to know, if you hadn't had those passions for medicine or for architecture, what do you think you had become in your life? Oh, that's tough. That's really tough. Um, I, I really had a passion for design um, and, uh, but equally you, the, the call of healthcare providing the strong as well. It would have to side in healthcare mm -hmm. and it, it, it might be one of the other disciplines. Um, but okay. yeah, I know. Actually, can I, can I, Tell you one thing. Um, so we've been involved in a development of a new simulation centre here at Queen's called Interesting. Um, and guess what? I was able to harness the world of health profession, educational research and architecture. So we were able to um, use learning theory to integrate it into the design of the building. So this kind of thing built, built pedagogy. So, right. so actually, I finally got to bring the two of them together. Oh, that's awesome after 20 plus years. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, yeah, still great opportunity and uh, I still haven't got the design out of my system just yet. Oh no, and you shouldn't because it's one of your passions. So it's great that you found a place for both of them. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Jerry, this has been really enjoyable. Thank you very much for sharing with us your stories and to, for being willing to just be here and talk about yourself. Really appreciate it. Oh, th thank you so much for, for the opportunity. And I'll, I'll post up the, uh, the Aikido um, pictures for you on Twitter in due course. Okay, perfect. I keep an eye as well. <laughs> okay, good You're luck with all your work. Thank you very much. And to everybody, we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.